Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor and host of Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. Mankind has changed the face of the earth. We've stripped land, we've polluted the air, we've even changed the course of rivers with dams. But have we changed it so much that we can announce that this has given rise to a new geological epoch? More about that later in the show. First, the history of computing starts long before a computer was actually built, in the early days of Victorian England. Today, the idea of a computer nerd may conjure up ideas of youngsters glued to screens, esoteric jokes about infinite loops, and billionaires who change the world. So it may come as a surprise that one of the first computer nerds was a woman. Lady Ada Lovelace wrote what is considered to be the first computer programs, but this being the 19th century, they predated actual electronic computers. She wrote them on paper for a mechanical computer made of gears and cogs that itself was actually never built. The idea for such a machine came from the ingenuity of Charles Babbage, the namesake of this podcast. Their friendship and intellectual collaboration ended far too soon when Lovelace died in her 30s. That seemed like a terrible end to the story, or so felt Sidney Padua. Sydney is alive with me and here today in the studio. Hello, Sydney. Hello. Sydney Padua is a visual effects animator for action films like The Jungle Book. She is also the author of the book The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage. With us to round off the discussion is Emma Duncan, the editor of 1843, The Economist Cultural Magazine. Hello, Emma. Hi. So, Sydney, let me begin with you. Lovelace, who was she and how did she grow up? She was born very early in the marriage of Byron and Annabella Milbank, um, a very tumultuous marriage from the start. Her mother left uh, Byron shortly after Ada was born. And Ada's childhood was very isolated. I think that's the overwhelming impression I get. Uh, she didn't, she wasn't generally allowed to play with other children. Her governesses, her interactions with other people were very, very strictly controlled by her mother. So she was brought up almost as an experiment um, her mother was very interested in children's education, so she wanted her, her daughter to be this example of rational upbringing of girls. So she had her trained uh, in a lot of mathematics, logic, um, a lot of factual stuff. She took her on tours of factories when she was uh, a very young child. So I, I would say weird would be the way to sum up her, uh, her childhood. Emma, how did she meet Charles Babbage? Well, she met him at a party. Charles Babbage gave really fabulous parties. He's always regarded as being a very curmudgeonly old nerd, but he actually knew everybody in London. And he gave these fantastic soirees where the best novelists would meet the grandest politicians and the cleverest scientists. And Ada was taken along, and they just clicked. And what is it that made them click? Sydney? What Ada clicked with was Babbage's machine. These parties were, were um, sort of very scientific salons, and people would bring inventions to show them off. The big showpieces were um, his Babbage's Silver Lady, which was this sort of mechanical automaton, and... Um, 
and the difference engine fragment, uh, which was a, sort of a calculator, an adding machine, basically. Ada fell madly in love with this device. Um, they also got along, I think, as, as people because they were both very strange people. I mean, when you read their writings and their letters, um, they were both somewhat socially awkward, very iconoclastic, very, they didn't really fit in with Victorian society. Babbage is not exactly known for his mild nature. Do you think that this held him back and therefore also Lovelace back in their work? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Babbage had huge fights with every single person uh, in Victorian England, basically. So um, he would have these very public falling outs with pretty much everyone he ever worked with, including Lovelace. So they, they had a big battle um, at one stage um, and made it up. But as far as I can tell, ba- Lovelace is the only person that Babbage actually had a fight with and then uh, made it up. As I'm sure you'll both agree, Lovelace does not always get the acknowledgement she truly deserves. Emma, I know you have a role in Ada's fame in London. Tell us about that. I, rather bizarrely, I entered a competition to name these two enormous engines that were to dig the holes for Crossrail, which is going under London, which will be open uh, 2018. And I just saw pictures of these tunnelling engines, these boring engines, which are just kind of so enormous. I thought they were really exciting and glamorous. And I had to think up two female names for them. And I thought of the two women who contributed most to science in London or to the knowledge of London. And one was Ada. And I thought of Ada partly because I bicycled past her house in St James's Square every day and there's her blue plaque. Mm. So I think about her a bit and I feel very fondly towards Ada. Um, And the other one was uh, Phyllis Pearsall, um, who was a woman who walked all 23,000 streets of London to map the city uh, a century ago. And rather to my surprise, I won this competition. So one of these massive, boring engines that's been going under London for the last three years is called Ada. (laughs) And because of this, I started reading about Ada. And the more I read about her, the more I liked her. And I think one of the things that I love about her is that, yeah, she is this fantastic scientist who has who had her her poetical heritage kind of closed away. But it shines through because her writing is so miraculous. She writes more beautifully about mathematics, I think, than than anybody I've read. And and even her her writing about her situation, her protest writing, if you like, is poetical. I just I love this line that you cite in the book of her writing to her mother. Crossly, she says You will not concede me philosophical poetry. Invert the order. Will you give me poetical philosophy, poetical science? And so touching and so beautifully put. Lovelace is known for writing the first computer program. What is the story there and what did the program actually do? The program is, um, like everything around this story, it's it's more complex, I think, than it's presented. Um, Lovelace's program wasn't the first computer program. Babbage had written uh, several. He had assistants who wrote several. His son wrote a couple. The The program that's often called the first computer program is this Bernoulli numbers um, thing, which is... Now, I have to say, I'm not a mathematician myself either, um, which complicates my <laughs> life in many ways. So I've had to learn a whole bunch of stuff. But she chose the Bernoulli program because it it demonstrates this capacity of the engine to loop, which for, for Lovelace in particular, she saw this as 
one of the most essential and most exciting features of the engine, that it could take a number, it could spit out a number from a calculation and then take that number, feed it back in and do something new to it. It's this looping that the Bernoulli number program requires. So the program, which, you know, it's this wonderful foldout. It is, is, what Lovelace is famous for is this paper on uh, Babbage's engine. It was the only published paper in the engine. Babbage didn't write one himself for whatever reason, probably just because he was Babbage and he always had to do things sort of backwards. But um, she didn't write the paper herself. She wrote a translation of a French paper written by an Italian because as a woman, obviously, she she would not be writing a scientific paper that was original That in this period that would not have been normal. So she was asked to translate the paper did the translation, and then felt she had to add some stuff. So she started adding footnotes to this paper. And the footnotes at the end turned out to be three times longer than the paper that she was footnoting. And in the footnotes is where she puts this huge program, this very, very complex sort of looping uh, Bernoulli numbers program. It's as if she's actually trying to send overt messages to Babbage in the the footnotes to the paper. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is my own opinion. This is not, you know, scholarly consensus by any means. But to me, the paper reads as though it's written to Babbage. Babbage uh, and her were were very good friends, but Babbage was not very good at listening to other people. Uh, And so to me, there's always a sense in Lovelace's correspondence with him that she's trying to get a word in edgewise. To me, it reads like the paper is her way of writing to Babbage with all these ideas that she has about the machine and finally get him to just sit and read them. Um, so it's it's full of little phrases like, I don't know, or she uses this royal we, because she's a Victorian, so we don't know if the originator of this machine has thought of this, but uh, we <laughs> have thought that perhaps the machine could do such and such. Emma, what does this story and Ada's life in general tell us about women in technology at the time? At the time, I think what it tells you is how extraordinary somebody like her was. I mean, you know, there there were so few women doing anything like that. And to to go as far as she did to achieve what she did, she must personally have had so much kind of brilliance and frustration welling up inside her to break through the constraints that women in those days felt intellectually. I mean, there were other women who did it. One of her mentors was Mary Somerville. Unlike Ada, who was told that she wasn't allowed literature, Mary Somerville was banned by her parents from from doing mathematics, and she had to do it secretly under the bedclothes at night. So there there were a few women who were doing it, but it was quite an extraordinary thing to do. In terms of, of Ada's perception these days, I have a sense, and I'd be really interested to know what Sydney thinks about this, that uh, people are scrabbling around for a, a female computing heroine. There is there's a certain amount of controversy about how important Ada actually was, but the tech world is fantastically male now. All over the world, it is hugely male-dominated, but people are not satisfied with this. Women and men both you know, want to raise the profile of women in tech. And I think uh, Ada's profile has benefited from that. Do you think that's fair, Sydney? Oh, absolutely. I mean, how important or how unimportant she is is such a subjective question. I mean, at the end of the day, the analytical engine wasn't built. Uh, it's just a bunch of plans that were locked up and, and very few people ever saw. It's not as though... Every once in a while, I'll stumble across some internet, uh, you know, headline 
without Ada Lovelace, we wouldn't have a computer. This is not the actual case at all, whether you had Lovelace and Babbage or not. They don't have a direct effect on, on the history of computing as far as we know. Her importance is as a story. I mean, it's the, we're human beings, and for us, stories are hugely important. So for me, the story of her is what's important and what's fun. And, you know, I guess the reason I wound up doing it as a comic was as opposed to, you know, some mathematical treatise. Uh, it's this wonderful story about so many things that we're dealing with today, not just women in science, but the conflict between a computerized, data-driven world and this romantic, poetic world that's being suppressed. You know, it's such a resonant story in so many ways. For me, it makes it unquestionably important. Thank you very much. Now, sadly, Lovelace and Babbage never were able to be on Twitter and Facebook because they didn't exist at the time. But you are, and we hope that you can follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Economist Radio or send us an email at radio at economist.com and, of course, join our Facebook page. Next, have humans changed the natural world to such an extent that we can proclaim that we have entered a new geological epoch? Some geologists think so. With me to unearth the story is our science correspondent, Tim Cross. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, what is this Anthropocene thing? Well, so this is the idea that humans now affect the planet so profoundly that some sort of fictional geologist, you know, living a million years from now, digging around in the rocks, would find a really sort of strong signal of human activity embedded in, in the record of the rocks and fossils and so on. And for that reason, it might be time to uh, ring down the curtain on the current geological epoch, which is called the Holocene, and declare a new one called the Anthropocene, which would, which would capture that idea. What is the evidence that geologists point to when they want to bolster the case that, in fact, human beings are changing the planet? There's absolutely loads of it. And one of the questions is, how do you narrow it down? But off the top of my head, you can take the massive increase in carbon or methane in the atmosphere. You can take the appearance of things like you know, large amounts of plutonium in the soil, in people's bones. You can take the appearance of novel sort of what they call technofossils. So these are things like rocks with plastic components in them, large amounts of elemental aluminium in the soil from, that we've mined from the earth. We've got built so many dams that the amount of sediment reaching the sea has dropped by about 20%. River deltas all over the world are shrinking. There's been a massive boost in species migration, you know, thanks to people transporting animals around by ship. So one of the examples given is that chickens, which are a, you know, a jungle animal, a tropical jungle animal, their bones are now found all over the world because we found them everywhere. And who are these self-appointed scientists who think that they could fiddle around with my conception of earthly time? Well, so the idea itself, it, it's not that new. I mean, it was sort of popularized in about the year 2000 by a guy called Paul Crutzen, who's an atmospheric chemist, and he's, he's quite interested in, in climate change. And that is obviously one of the big uh, ways in which people are, are influencing the planet, it sort of took off from there and it's taken on a life of its own. And the more that people look, the more they find you know, signals of things that we've either never seen before or that are happening with uh, unprecedented speed or that we've amplified natural processes way beyond the rates at which they've operated before. And so in 2009, a bunch of geologists got together, set up something called the Anthropocene Working Group and decided to have a proper look into this. And then this week, on Monday, the 29th of August, for uh, everyone who's listening, for whom this will be in our future, they gave their report to the International Geological Congress, which is taking place in Cape Town. And they concluded, basically, that the evidence was, was pretty much overwhelming and that they think the time really has come to declare a new geological epoch. Tim, before I let you go, my jaded nature as a journalist, as well as my love of science, as a science journalist, 
forces me to wonder to what degree this these scientists are motivated by a political uh, view of climate change and an agenda to sort of focus man's attention upon the destruction it's bringing on the planet, and they're trying to make a political point through science. Is there any truth to that? I think there is some truth to that. I think uh, one of the reasons that the idea of the Anthropocene's caught on is because it lets you do exactly that. It lets you sort of say to people, hey, look, you need to figure out, you need to realize just you know, how much we're, we're affecting the planet. I think, as I said, it, as a concept, it's been around for more than a decade. And the geologists tend to be kind of appropriately, I guess, a pretty conservative bunch. And the working group's recommendation is just a recommendation. So if they actually want to get this formally declared, the people who ultimately have the power to do this are the Union of Geological Sciences, which is this big sort of transnational organization. There's a whole bunch of bureaucratic strata, if you like, that they have to drill their way through. There are subcommittees and committees, and they have to convince them and then their bosses and their bosses and eventually it will take a vote of the entire uh, union to declare that this thing has happened. And I think what people will want to see is exactly what you said. You know, the test shouldn't be, is this a politically convenient uh, way to get people to take this seriously? The test really should be, you know, if we still have geologists in a million years' time, will they be drilling back through the rock, looking at rock that dates from right now and saying, oh, wow, something really big happened here? Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Tim's piece on the Anthropocene, do pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist and printer online. I'm Kenneth Couquier. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.